Driving, listening, nodding, smiling, net phoning and mobiling, dialing up Australia. You better tell us where you are, Stacey. Jarang Jarang. Jarang Jarang. Population 10. (laughs) So I have a wildlife rescue and rehabilitation centre here and I am just about to leave to take a wedge-tailed eagle down to the Werribee Zoo for a vet check. Tell me the story of the wedge-tail. Well, he's missing a rear toe, which is called a hallux. It's a relatively fresh injury. I don't know how that happened. But x-rays have shown a bit of a shadow on his leg. So I'll go and check it out, make sure he's not got a, a bone infection. He's been in care for a week. He's eating me out of house and home. I think he's got a good outcome, but I'll just double check with the vet. I've got another wedgie in care. His name's Nevis, uh, or her name's Nevis. She's a long stayer, but she'll be gone. She's missing some primary flight feathers. So once they molt back in, she can go home. Is that the feathers on the wingtips? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like cutting a, clipping a chook's wing. So she's off balance and can't get up. How long have you been doing this sort of thing, Stacey? Oh, years. (laughs) Just been an absolute parade of animals through and this year's quite busy because we've had flooding in in the district and, yeah, a lot of animals came into care for help. Wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. The Somerset sea snakes are in the pool. Benambra's icy. Dalveen's cool. It's snowing where it's never snowed before. The kitchen's spotless in Cundabung, and if your mother hasn't rung, she's probably listening to Macca on a Sunday morning. She waits all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. Interesting about the Eagles. Good morning and welcome wherever you are. I love, the, uh, love to talk to you this morning. Our number's 1300 700 And talking about little birds, I had a, a note from... Uh, a friend of mine, Nancy, who lives on a station out west of Burke at Ellerslie, and she says, uh, we found this, we found it was Stacy last week, talking about the eagles, she looks after eagles. And uh, But Nancy says, we found this baby Major Mitchell in McNiven's paddock, unable to fly and with bad landing gear. Uh, Major Mitchell's are lovely birds, aren't they? One leg was bent stiff behind him and the other was pushed up and not working very well. We found him flapping about on the ground and then we noticed Bob Hawke eyeing him off. So we said, you're Bob, you're not having him for lunch. Picked him up and after a lot of TLC he became quieter and his legs improved but not well enough for us to even put him in a big cage. Now he's known as that spoilt bird. He dances to Monty Python's flying service whistles and goes, oh, when his toy dog clips, uh, his toy dog uh, attacks him, or when he does the flying trapeze act swinging from the roof of his cage. Talks a lot. Uh, can hear a car coming. This is Grace, young Grace, before I can. And she, when she goes, she says, bye-bye, Macca, in the saddest tone. You've got to love him. And she sent a picture of this poor little... Poor little Major Mitchell, but he looks all right. They're beautiful birds. Have you seen a Major Mitchell? I was out on the Darling once and we did a thing with uh, the Department of um, Conservation, I think it was, and they were releasing some Major Mitchells back because a lot of, see, a lot of, some, you know, think birds fly, but Major Mitchells, for for example, are not very good flies at all. So when there's big paddocks with long distances and no trees, they're in trouble. They're not big, they're not good flies at all. Uh, anyway, our number this morning is 1300 700 
uh, wherever you are. I'd love to talk to you. As I said, macatracks at gmail.com. Last week, uh, you might have missed it. You probably did. Um, it's taking a while to get back. Uh, Tony, Tony rang last week. Good morning, Macca. My name's Tony. Uh, I'm in Hornsby, New South Wales. How are you? Uh, good, thanks, Tony. Just wanted to say it's really good to hear you back on the radio. Oh, we, we, I think you. a lot of people missed you. I'm a bus driver, Sunday shift. It's good money on Sundays. What time do you start? 5.30, 1.30, finished. It's good from that point of view. Tony, tell me about that. You're in Sydney, right, Hornsby. Tell me about the traffic in Sydney. You've been driving for a while, have you? Yeah. I think this traffic around Sydney last few years has uh, got a bit better, like in, in the northwest. It's obviously, in peak hours, it's still tough, but uh, it's not too bad. It's not as bad as it used to be. Mm. I think there's a lot of people working from home, Macca. Yeah, I think so too. Just one more thing. Uh, you won't remember, but we spoke to you about 20 years ago. We were bringing a, boat, a yacht back from uh, Africa, and uh, we're in the middle of, of the Indian Ocean, and we were calling you, and that was always the highlight of the week. Anyway. <laughs> well, it's a highlight for my video. week too. I'll tell you, when I get a call like that, it's a highlight of my week, Tony, I'll tell you. I'll give you yeah, a... you probably don't remember it, but we remember. Anyway, it was, uh, it was always good to touch base with you. When, when was that? When, what year? I'd say, I think it was just after 2000, Macca. The boat called, was a boat called Broomstick, and there was one called Marchioness. Yeah, we're bringing it back from Africa, back to Sydney, so there you go. I haven't done much for about 10 years, but uh, it's always in the back of my mind. I, I love it very much, and oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do. So, Scary thing. driving a bus. <laughs> you sort of look back and think, well, how good was that? Even though at the time you might have been uh, frightened you weekend, but uh, you sort of go back for more sometimes. It's crazy. Anyway, that's what it is. I hope you have a lovely day. It's lovely to hear your voice back on the radio, mate. Just so you know. Well, thanks very much, mate. Great to talk to you. That was Tony last week. And he, as he said, he was on board a boat called the Marchioness. Uh, and we had a call. I think his name is Tony Bilby. And I think he was, he was the skipper, I'm not sure, on the Marchioness. And they were coming back to Australia to take part in the... Um, Sydney Hobart, but I think they'd been in. That was the year was actually ninety seven because I found the interview uh, in ninety seven. They'd already so January ninety. That was June ninety seven when they called us. When when uh, Tony, well, it actually wasn't Tony. It was John. But when they called us, it was June. But they'd been in the Sydney Hobart. I think in that in ninety seven in January, and I think they came fourth. And then of course ninety eight was the that. Terrible year for the Sydney Hobart with a terrible storm and boats sank and all that sort of thing. And I think the Marchioness was uh, was out of the race after a, after a short time. But uh, we did get that call and I found it in our little archive and uh, I thought I'd bring it to you. This is that call in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Have a listen. Hello, Macca. Yeah. Uh, we're doing the delivery. Uh, normally at this time, 
John, uh, how does a, a farmer from Hamilton uh, learn to become a uh, proficient sailor, or, or, what, or what do you do on board? Over. most important bloke on board, John. You're heading to Frio and then round to Sydney and, and this Marchioness, is that the name of it? It'll be in the Sydney Hobart next uh, next uh, December, January. Yeah, that's affirmative, Macker. Um, yeah, the boys tell me that they're going to be uh, full out for line on it, which I believe the boat's quite capable of. It's a magnificent yacht, 75 foot. Uh, the mast, 95 foot over the deck. And... Uh, John, thanks for your call. It's really nice to hear from you out there. It just uh, puts us for all of those people who'll never be able to do that, including me, probably. It's uh, it's just nice to talk uh, talk to you and just think about uh, being out there. And uh, we'll take note of the Marchioness when it comes uh, to Australia and it's in the Sydney Hobart. Over. Yeah, thanks for that, Macca. We'll go clear now and uh, the rest of the crew on board will... Uh put it back onto the radio and continue listening to your program for the rest of the morning. Over and going clear. Thanks, John. Hello, Mac. This is John. G'day, John. John from Glen Martin and ex of the Marsh Nest Racing, racing Boat. Oh, really? Are you, the, are you the John I spoke to, John? <laughs> no, not that John. No, unfortunately not. Another John. Another. I, sailed on, I sailed in the Hobarts in the 98. And 99 races with the uh, with the gang down there, and have, and we have by great coincidence a anniversary of that trip and that uh, section of the uh, boat's history coming up next month. Right, because I looked it up because uh, uh, Tony rang us last week. Um, he was uh, in Sydney, but he he told me that he'd rung us in 90. Uh, he said 2000, but it was 97. He rang us when the boat was coming back from South Africa. And they were in the middle of the, uh, and I and I found it, but I, and I looked it up and Marchioness. So that was ninety seven. So that means in the it, it was in the ninety seven um, Sydney Hobart, but that's January. So I think it came right. fourth then, um, or that's something it. like that. And then ninety eight was the big storm, wasn't it? That's correct. Yes, we were the lead boat. And then you got you broke a mast or something, or yeah, we busted a mast and. Um... Had a few injuries on board and uh, fiddle casualties, so uh, the wise heads 
decide to come back and to turn around to Sydney and have another crack the next year. Yeah. So, John, um, what do you, you you sailed the Marchioness a couple of times and. Yeah, we uh, did that particular regatta, uh, the 98 race where we came, I think, third or fourth. So uh, when Nokia won it and the big breeze down the coast, so it was a wonderful trip. And we did also a lot of uh, East Coast uh, regattas with that boat. It's now living up in Early Beach as a cruise boat. I saw, I, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. It's a lovely big boat, but uh, and a boat like that would cost a lot to maintain, wouldn't it? It does, and uh, very fortunate that the syndicate was based uh, around four barristers so John, what are Tony, you? Sorry, Tony's go on. Brother, Tony's brother and uh, three barristers from state chambers in uh, in Martin Place. Yeah, Tony, what do you do? Uh, sorry, John, what do you do? Uh, I look after the four deck crew. It's a boat of about twenty five people, so it's a big maxi. Yeah, and the four deck boys are the guys that do all the hard work. Um, and then the sewer getting sails up and down, packing sails, making sure the sail changes are all great. Wow. And uh, make sure the guys in the uh, space station in the back uh, get what they want, make it, sure the boat goes quick. It's like, well, it's like a, a, a rugby league or a Aussie Reels football team, isn't it, the way that uh, they train for a, for a, on a big maxi? Yeah, it's t- two teams of footy players, and uh, the most important person, as you know, was the chef. <laughs> we, had a, we, had a bloke called, we had a fellow called Pierre who was a... Uh, Peter was his real name, but uh, he would cook 76 meals a day. Just unbelievable fellow. That's what Paul Hogan said to me once when I was, we were talking to him. He was, he was promoting one of his films, and uh, he said, oh, yeah, well, he said the, the best thing about this movie is, is the um, – is the food. He said, we've got a French chef. And um, <laughs> and then Max Cullen said to me one day, he said, yeah, he said, I've been in 47 Australian films. He said, not many of them are very good. He said, but the food was great. Um, <laughs> the most important thing, isn't it, John? It is. And uh, when, it, when it got a bit rough, he'd just cook up a curry and then half the time he'd throw it over the side and we'd all yell at him and ask him what he was doing. He was just saying, oh, I'm going to save the middleman. So <laughs> So, Johnny, tell me, you, you, how long have you been mucking around in boats? Oh, fair while, Mac. I started off in little skiffs as usual in Middle Harbour in the skiff club round uh, at Kirribilli and then um, got my own racing boat, a 41-foot called Turkey Shoot. Uh-huh. And a few mates from school, did a few harbouts and that and uh, got into the big boat program and ended up going with Marchness and Nokia and Alfa Romeo and about eleven or twelve hobites now, so it doesn't mean I'm very clever. But so that's your that's your full time job. Uh, I used to be a bit of, bit of uh, semi professional sailing a while back, but now I'm just a uh, a, 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 a a very nervous beekeeper up near Dunkog, wow. <laughs> near the red zones where the where the varomites getting very close to my sail. Oh, that's right. They were sort of in the hunter, weren't they? That's it. Very close. Yeah, because I've talked to Isn't some it? beekeeper. I talked to a beekeeper the other day. I forget where. She was, um, but she said, no, we're fine here. I think oh, they were down in Victoria somewhere because I asked about Varroa and she said, oh, no, things are fine here. I think they were, yeah, they oh, were right. down in Victoria, but um, depends where you are, I suppose. How, how long have you been doing bees? No, oh, only about six years, Maka. Just something I've got into on the farm. So. Mm. Trying to help the uh, environment keep going. Yeah, I've always fancied, well, not fancied, but I've always thought about sailing, uh, you know, and sailing around the world because you've read about Francis Chichester and, and you think about sailing around the world, and so, and then when uh, John on the Marchioness rang in '97, and he's in the middle of the Indian, Indian Ocean, like two thousand miles from anywhere, um, and that's a big body of water, isn't it? Um, and can be dangerous, I suppose. 
yeah, well, you're a long way, uh, long way from help if things go wrong. So really, uh, your best, your best mates are your best mates, mm. and they become best mates for a long time when you've been to those sort of conditions. And it's like footy, and it's like tennis, and it's like any sport really, or any club association. You meet really great friends, and uh, and uh, yeah, one of the reasons I called was the uh, Masters 25 year reunion coming up uh, by coincidence next month in uh, Cruising Yacht Club in Sydney. Oh wow! So. I suppose Tony will be there and um, the John who rang me and... I hope so. I hope so. And any other Marchioness people have uh, maybe lost contact would like to come along as well. If I could leave your number, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Kelly is the contact number. Yeah. And it's 9, Sydney, 9223 1522. 1522, there you go. And that's one of the owners, that's one of the owners, uh, personal secretary, Michael Kranich, it's the secretary and she'll... Uh, gladly get any information from all those people who've been on that boat around that time. All right, John. Good luck with that. And, uh, yeah, I'll meet you sometime. Thanks, Mac. Appreciate the, uh, the time. Take me for a sail on a river. Okay. <laughs> Be a bit quieter. <laughs> Thanks, a John. Day Thanks, <laughs> mate. Good on you, mate. Bye. G'day. This is Macca. Good morning, Macca. It's Veronica here from Strathallen, um, near, near Rochester. All right. Bringing up to tell you about another great stretch of water, the Campaspe River. Uh-huh. We're having a carp catch along the Campaspe today. It's the 10th annual carp catch. For the last 10 years, we've the land care group's been uh, having this fishing event just to get these dreadful uh, introduced species or reduce their numbers and give our native fish a bit of a go. So, uh, yeah, we're at, we're at Rochester this morning. Uh, all the town are getting together. We're going to be fishing along the river from 11 o'clock, um, coming back hopefully with loads of carp at 3 o'clock for uh, prizes and a bit of a pat in the back and, uh, of course, plenty of sausage sizzles and ice creams. Sounds like a lovely time. at the Corellas calling this morning in... Uh... In There's Roche. loads of them, loads <laughs> of Roche. them. <laughs> how, many, how many carp do you usually catch? I mean, what's you've been doing this for 10 years, have you? Yes, yeah. Um, well, it varies. I think the last time we caught 30. But the most interesting thing is we normally uh, fish in October, end of October, mm. and we found after all some years that when we get the fish out, particularly the females, they're full of eggs. So we reckon it's made a real difference because we're getting the the females when they're full of eggs. Um, But, of course, with the floods on the 15th of October, we had to cancel this year and uh, we bought it... uh, bought it out to, uh, today we're going to run it today and see how we go so uh, the water's still it's gone down uh, pretty muddy and of course that's the sort of water that carp love yeah you'd think after all this time wouldn't you that we'd find a way to to deal with the carp I remember being at the Macquarie marshes and there'd been been some I was standing on a little bridge somewhere and uh, out near it was out near Quambone um, uh, beyond Quambone and I looked down and Below, and here's all these carp swimming below the just uh, against a, a slight current, and and they're everywhere. And you would think we've got some biological thing where we could get rid of carp because they do interfere with the, the native fish, don't they? Yeah, well, they're working on that. They mm. have been for probably the last years yeah, when, on a virus yeah. that they're going to put out. But, of course, they've got to make sure that the native fish and other things like uh, uh, platypus, of course, aren't going to be affected by anything that they, any virus that they put into the river. Yeah. So they're being careful. It will happen. 
Uh, but in the meantime, if you can catch them and take them out of the river, uh, you, native fish will have a go back. They can fight the little, the, you know, sort of eat, eat native, they'll eat the carp <laughs> if they're small enough, yeah. if they get a go. Um, so we reckon we've made a difference in 10 years. Um, but today's going to be really special because of everything we've been through here in Rochi. It's a, a way for us to get back to normal and uh, do something along the river. This river that's such an important bio link in this district. Uh, it's a great river, the, the Campaspe. Um, mm. And so, you know, we can try and keep it as, uh, as, as fresh and, and good looking as possible. And of course, getting the carp out helps. Are many people moving back to Cam uh, to uh, Rochi after the floods? I mean, moving back into houses, or is that pretty no, slow? No, look, it's very, very slow, very, very slow. Um, yeah, people were flooded out everywhere. Like we were flooded out here at Strathallen. Um, we're slowly, slowly getting back on our feet. Um, it's a, you know, it's a long, drawn-out process. Um, and so things like this, a little carp catch where we get out for the day and all get together and have a bit of fun, um, sort of lifts everybody's spirits. I'll and, say. Um, well, it lifts our spirits too, and we're not even near you this morning. So anyone can turn up at uh, uh, Rochi today and go for a fish? Yeah, yeah. And uh, on uh, at the Campaspe River opposite the what we call the Kai Bridge. It's the bridge, the one bridge in Rochi that heads towards Kyabram. So at the Kai Bridge, it's opposite the old milk factory. So we're on the river reserve there. There'll be a couple of gazebos up and people there. Uh, and we just sort of register people so we know who's there and give them a show bag with some information <laughs> about carp and other stuff right. and uh, get them to come back with hopefully a carp and a cheer when they come back. It's always wonderful when the kids come back with a, or, and adults too with a carp. So um, hopefully we'll get a few today. Good on you, Veronica. Good on you. Thanks very much. See Thanks, you. Macca. Bye. James is in Gisborne. Good morning, James. Hey, Mac, how are you going? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, I live down here. I'm a stonemason by trade and um, manage a farm down here also. I'm flat out with work. So I thought I'd just ring up and say hello because you're after some callers. So. <laughs> good yeah. on you. Flat out with farming or flat out with stonemasoning? Both. both. Re- really? Yeah. yeah, manage about 500 acres down here. Yeah. Um, and stonework, yeah, booked out for a whole year. I don't advertise and it's all local stone and I don't travel. Probably, well, they go probably half an hour. So, when you say local stone, is that is that uh, sandstone or is that uh, that hard? You know, yeah, it's a mix. Granite, it's, it's granite, the sandstone, and bluestone in this area can get. Caps main sandstone, Harcourt granite, and bluestone. I get that from Rankiton or Monagita over near um, all in the sort of massive ranges. Benigo area, so it's not far. Sandstone seems to be a lot softer. The other, those other ones, like the granite and stuff, that are they hard to cut? Um, well, I, I don't find them hard to work. Actually, the granite I probably do. The blue stone I find, if I get on the right stone, you can split it like um, splitting wood. Yeah, and that's 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 fair because you'll get a, I'll get a stone probably about oh, a ton, and I'll get me pugs and feathers, do it the old way, drill it. Yeah. And I'll split it, and if it splits good, it'll split right through for me. Wow. It'll split stone. Yeah, no, it's unbelievable. And, it goes. and the sort of things you're doing, you're building houses or you, or fences or whatever. Yeah. What? Do, do, do a lot of retaining walls, mm. um, feature walls, um, chimneys. Um, not many whole houses because it's so expensive to do now. Yeah, exactly. But um, 
Yeah, but no, just a lot of a lot of entrance walls, do a lot of that stuff. And garden wall curve for people, uh, water features, whatever they want, really. Beautiful. And how did you get into that, uh, James? Well, um, 30 years ago, I started, and I've got on to a fellow at uh, Huntley Barton. He's up there, and he said to me, do you want to come work? And I said, yeah, no worries, I'll come work for you. And I've been, I stayed with him for 18 years. He did monuments, all all local stone. He did the granite stones and, and the blue stone monuments and all that. So, but when mum passed away, I thought, oh, I'll have a break and went out on my own. I've been flat out ever since. So, yeah, that's my story. <laughs> yeah, my grandpa was a stonemason, but mostly it was because uh, he was in the Sydney basin and it was mostly sandstone, you know. So he was chip, chip, chipping away all the time when I was a kid and, um, and and doing things, but I so and I I've still got all these gads, you know, and his hammers and bits and pieces and scutch combs and all that sort of stuff. Oh, you have, have you? Oh, that's that's awesome having that sort of stuff. But, that's good. I don't really know. I, I I used to watch him, but you know, I don't think. And lifting one of those hammers all the time, mate, you need strong, big, strong wrists, don't you? Well, you develop them, I suppose, if you're a stonemason. Well, you do. After 30 years, I can't straighten my arms out anymore. Really? I can't. Yeah, because the tendons and everything sort of tighten up. Um, and I try to say to young fellas, don't use a heavy hammer. Use a light hammer because yeah. you'll paper when you get older. But they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's part of the beauty of being young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah, have to listen to anybody else, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, but, you know, yeah, no, yeah, real busy and... Well, the weather's down here nice today. Anyhow, we've had a hot hot day on Friday, but today's a nice day. The cows are carving, so I'm enjoying that at the moment. So, yeah, at the tail end of it. James, nice to talk to you this morning. I always feel I always feel kindred with uh, uh, stonemasons because, as I said, I, my grandpa and I met his mates and they used to talk to one another. They'd do a job and then they'd stand back and look at it and then they'd say, well, Jack, it's not a bad job and, you know, all that sort of stuff and... Yeah, you can look back on your work, can't you? Unlike yeah. this, unlike this job when it's just gone and out in the vellum vellum, you can stand back and look at what you've done, and there it is, and in front of you, yeah. and, and it's there for a long, long time. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realise it's not a matter of just throwing the stone, and you sort of got to balance it out when you do it too. It's sort of, it's nothing worse than having it too top heavy and light down below. You really got to sit back and and you do look at it and you balance it, and, and at the end of the day, yeah, it is really satisfying. Done some really interesting jobs over the years. I bet you have. So, I bet you have. Yeah. You work where you work mainly around. You're in Gisborne, right? Yeah, massive and ranges. Like yeah, I don't travel far. Probably first, it probably goes half an hour from home. Um, that's just yeah, I just don't have to travel at all. And some really lovely people. I've done some jobs for over the years too. Really nice people. And I bet there's not um, a lot of stonemasons around, James. Look, there is. You can shake the bush up around Castlemaine. You get a few up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, down the city, there's a couple of good blokes outside Melbourne. I've heard some good blokes down that way. But no, there's a few. If you hunt around, you can find them. Um, but just find the good ones is probably a bit hard. That's the only thing I'd say. <laughs> Exists like, like, like everything. Yeah, go on. Yeah, there's like hunting up in Kite, and he still teaches the old um, lead raising, um, letter cuttering, and all that up there still. Um, there's not many people doing that in Australia, though. So mm. that's, a, that's a dying art. And so that's, they still use the old cranes in that yard today to move stone in the yard. It's unbelievable for that yard. I'll still bet. going. Yeah. Good on you, James. All right, thank you very much, Mac. Thanks for the call.
This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News. A nicer place, maybe, maybe a scarier place with balloons apparently from China, maybe spying. Our weather correspondent, Richard Whittaker, takes us back some 78 years. During the latter stages of World War II, people in various parts of the USA became aware of sudden explosions that appeared to be taking place in random fashion across the country. Little damage was done, but the US military, particularly the Air Force, became increasingly interested. After investigating the site of one such explosion, they made an astonishing discovery. It appeared as though the explosions had been caused through bombs carried by some type of lighter-than-air balloon, and a very large one at that. It was calculated that the balloon in question was, when inflated, about 10 metres, or 33 feet, in diameter. By examining the sand ballast attached to the object, they were able to establish that the sand came from Japan, and that the balloon was filled with hydrogen. Furthermore, it was found that the balloon itself was made of a special type of paper called washi, a Japanese product. These balloons were called fugos, meaning fire balloons or fire bombs, and were the first weapons in history capable of travelling intercontinental distances. A load of light bombs was attached, both incendiary and anti-personnel, and these were towed aloft to an altitude of around 10 kilometres, that's six miles, where they were picked up by the upper-level jet stream and carried across the Pacific Ocean to the United States. After a journey of around three days, the balloons arrived over North America and the bombs were jettisoned automatically. Between November 1944 and April 1945, the Japanese launched some 9,300 Fugos, but only around 300 were recorded as reaching the USA. Bombs were dropped over widespread areas, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Wyoming, Texas, Kansas and South Dakota, as well as Mexico and Canada. It's likely that other balloons also made it across the Pacific but fell in remote and unpopulated areas and were never discovered. To avoid public panic or supplying the Japanese with damage estimates, the reporting of these balloons was banned in the media. The US government was particularly worried about the incendiary bombs could trigger forest fires and even more by the possibility that the balloons could be used to introduce biological agents and livestock diseases into the USA. Fighters were ordered to intercept and shoot down the balloons wherever possible, but after B-29 bomber raids destroyed two of Japan's main hydrogen-producing plants in April 1945, the Japanese abandoned the offensive. Despite the large number of Fugos deployed, only six deaths were reported all from a single incident. The total damage was comparatively minor. The Fugo balloon bomb would go down in the history books as a fairly ineffective device, but it produced widespread concern across the USA, just like the balloons of today. It also made its way into the history books as the first unmanned intercontinental weapon using the atmosphere as the delivery platform. This is the All Over News, and from an unnamed correspondent, who says, Ian, your program generally deals with pleasant and positive events, but I do hope you can give some airtime to the following. Our correspondent says, We have a problem. The ACT Parks and Gardens, advised by goodness knows who, have declared the Cootamundra wattle a noxious pest and has its rangers running around the city's nature parks, actively destroying these beautiful trees as they were on the verge of bursting into full blossom 
and at a time close to National Wattle Day, this was written last Wattle Day but only just arrived, when the glorious blossoms were about to usher in spring after a bleak and gloomy winter. One has to wonder how anyone can destroy a thing of such beauty, but destroy them they are, and with a vengeance. The Kutamundra wattle is not a pest species. With a lifespan of only approximately 15 years, it is never going to proliferate, as its detractors would have us believe, but is instead a highly revered native, in fact one of our national floral emblems. These people are conducting a clandestine operation for obvious reasons as they attempt to avoid the outcry that will ensue from Canberrans, who treasure the tree in their gardens and parks, and others with the love of this most attractive native. The irony of this misplaced altruism is that while the ACT rangers are going about cutting out the wattles, the real pests in our nature parks, such as rabbits in profusion, foxes, feral cats and weeds such as Patterson's Curse, St John's Wort, thistles and other nuisances, grow unchecked, perhaps too difficult for ACT parks and gardens to contemplate managing. Ian, I'm hoping to enlist your support in this vexatious matter by broadcasting the unhappy circumstances so that most Canberrans and others are made aware of the vandalism taking place. From our Cootamundra correspondent. Steve's in Larrakia in the Territory. Good morning, Steve. G'day, Macca. How are you going? Yeah, good, thank you. Yep, this morning at uh, 8.15 to 9 o'clock, we've got the uh, USS Peary Memorial, and from 9.30 to 11 the bombing of Darwin, uh, 81st anniversary. That's right. It's a big time. There'll be uh, lots of uh, dignitaries and lots of people there to commemorate that. Uh, we're running a little piece on it later about 9 o'clock because um, we spoke to um, Mel Duke, who was on board the Piri, and uh, years ago when he, he came back to Australia, I think for for a Darwin celebration, he came with his wife. It was it was... It was great to talk to him, but uh, you can't imagine what Darwin must have been like just being attacked and really defenceless they were at the time, Steve, weren't they? Yeah, well, I mean, it's um, it's incredible to think. You know, here we are sitting here in 2023 and just thinking, wow, you know, life's so good here. Um, but, I mean, back in those days, it must have been terrifying. Oh, exactly. And uh, when you hear some of the people I've talked to over the years uh, and what they ha- what was going on, and nobody had any idea. We'd never been attacked before, and all of a sudden, bombs are going off. Bombs are going yeah. off, and they're being strafed with machine guns by zeros coming in wave after wave. More people were killed there than that were at Pearl Harbor. More ships sunk than at Pearl Harbor. It was, and of course, the rest of Australia knew nothing about it because uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a good idea not to tell people too much bad news in a war. If, if you keep getting bad news, it's um, so. I suppose you've got to be selective, but. Yeah, well, let's just hope the listeners this morning uh, can come down because it's a good-looking morning. Um, the sky's fairly clear. Oh, I can't see any rain, so uh, Darwin City Council have set up marquee. So if uh, if rain did eventuate, I mean, there's plenty of cover, and it's it's always a good turnout here each year and the uh, for the 19th of uh, February. So so all the listeners, uh, if anyone's visiting Darwin, come on down and uh, and just um, you know, pay your respects. Steve, what are you doing in Darwin? What's your story? Uh, I'm in the Air Force, Macca. Uh huh. And so uh, I'm off. I'm off at the moment. Uh, I've just had a full knee replacement, so I've got a couple of weeks off just to recuperate. Oh wow, how's that? Uh, oh, good, good. Yeah, no, the surgeons up here are fine. So it's uh, yeah, no, I'm walking around, no problem. How just a little you, scar. How did you do your knee? What? What? Uh, how old are you? Can I ask? Oh, uh, well, I'm I'm 55 now, Macca. So uh, I've been around a bit, and um, you know, this is my 23rd year in the service, and uh, wiki keeping and playing rugby and. <laughs> 
sport all my life. I tell you, the knees are they're, they're shot. Yeah, wicket <laughs> keeping. I was talking to a wicket keeper the other day, Ray Tozer, who used to play for St George, a lovely keeper. But um, I didn't ask him about his knees. But you always think of, <laughs> you always think about your hands when you're a, a wicket keeper. You know, getting yeah, bummed. yeah, they're they're, they're pretty arthritic. As well. <laughs> the whole body's pretty arthritic. <laughs> and how's the Air Force going? Ah, very well up here at the moment. So um, we're going to have a busy year again, and um, uh, yeah, all's good. What it's very of... hot up here. So... I bet it is, and and bit of rain. Ah, uh, we've had a little bit of rain, but the the heat is very oppressive. So if um, if anyone comes down this morning, make sure they bring a water bottle and bring a hat because it is uh, is quite uh, quite humid. And whereabouts is it this morning? Ah, uh, the USS Peary's on the Esplanade, and that'll begin at eight fifteen, uh, and then people can just um. Mosey on down for about a 10-minute walk from the Piri to the um, where the marquees are set up at the Esplanade at the Cenotaph, and that'll begin about half past nine. Okay. All right, Steve. I'll see you sometime in Darwin. If you're there. What sort of planes are they flying? What sort of jets are they flying out of um, Darwin at the moment? Well, Darwin's a transit base, so there's actually no uh, there's no jets based here. But on the last year, the DC-3 flew over, uh, and that was the um, the... The ex-chief chief administrator's DC-3, I believe, flew over last year. But sometimes I think um, jets come up from Tyndall. So maybe maybe Tyndall may send up somebody this morning. There you go. Steve, great to talk to you this morning, mate. Good on you, Mackie. You have a good day, eh? Good on you, mate. Bye. I'll tell you why I live where I live. Come and meet Steve. Steve's in Almara, which is up near Grafton in New South Wales, northern New South Wales. I'm on the banks of the Clarence, little hamlet called Almara. I'm talking to... Steve Pickering. How are you, Steve? I'm good. That's good. I've just been to the bookshop, but they're closed. They are. They're closed at 3.30, Macca. <laughs> Steve, tell me your story. I own a gallery in Almara. Mm. I moved here about six years ago from the Lower Blue Mountains in Sydney, uh, where I used to listen to you religiously, mm. so it's a real nice surprise for you to walk into my gallery. Bought a historic building with my partner six years ago, uh, not knowing what to do with it, just wanting to escape the rat race, move somewhere quiet and picturesque. And I realised that there were all these artists in the area that had nowhere really to display their work, so we thought, oh, we'll open up an art gallery. It was this or a, a survivalist store, and uh, it became an art gallery. And when you talk about art, it's not just painting, it's... Sculpt and woodworking and all sorts of stuff, silverware. And... It, it sure, it sure is. It was actually the woodworkers that gave us the idea. We got talking to the local woodworkers and they wanted to use one of our outbuildings as a studio, but we had a couple of older women renting the place at the time and I didn't really like the idea of these guys wandering around the property with two older women uh, just on their own. So we decided that uh, the, the woodworkers, we asked them if they would like to display their woodwork in the gallery. So the gallery and the woodwork went hand in hand and then that the painters and the jewellers and the, the, the bronze smiths and the blacksmiths all heard about this gallery that was opening and there was a queue at the door, people wanting to, uh, to, to talk to us to, to see if we wanted to have their work in here. So it actually started off as a, a woodworking gallery um, and then the, the, the painters uh, came, came along afterwards. And how do you choose a place like Almara? It's, very, it's really off the beaten track, isn't it? Uh, it sure is. Especially now, the highway's left you behind. Yeah, well, it was a lot busier when we first moved here. Um, the, the highway went through right uh, through the middle of the, the village. Uh, it stopped about two years ago, the same time that the COVID lockdown happened. So we ended up with absolute peace and quiet. Um, people couldn't sleep in the village when the highway disappeared because it was just too quiet. You, you'd get woken up with a cow mooing or a, a rooster a crowing. Rooster, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, it was yeah, really lovely. But um, uh, we came here just... Uh, 
got sick of the, 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 the traffic. One and a half, two hours each way to and from work in Sydney. It was, it was just too much. My partner was actually just constantly on Google looking for historic buildings for sale. And uh, this one just popped up and it looked wrong. It didn't, the ads didn't look right on realestate.com. So, and uh, so we thought we'd go for a drive and see what the story is. And we're wandering around and it really was uh, what was advertised and uh, did what we could to, to put a deposit down and, and secure it. As I said earlier, you're on the banks of the Clarence. How was the flood? We knew that the flood would come, and it did. It, uh, it, we, there were two floods within two days back in February, March. The first flood overtopped the levee and came down the main street into half of our building, um, took out half of the gallery, but luckily we'd, we'd moved um, all of the art out by that time. Uh, we could see that it was a possibility. There's been flood warnings before, but it never happens. Then two days later, the second flood came, the back flood from the Coldstream River came in the back way and they took out our house. So over two days, we lost half our business and half our house, ended up living in temporary accommodation for about seven months. And uh, back home, but it's, it's still a lot more to do. But it was, it's tough, and it was even tougher for a lot of other residents, and not just Almara, but the whole area. Up and down the East Coast, really. Ab- absolutely. And now you look around everywhere, the all over Australia. <laughs> the whole country's wet. Exactly. So, and you're not faced by living on the banks of the river? You've got to live somewhere. And uh, when we lived in Sydney, we were living in uh, Lower Blue Mountains, so Emu Heights. And maybe six months or a year before we moved up here, from our front window, we could see the flames of the bushfires of, that must have been 2016. So we could see the, the flames around Mount Riverview of bushfires, RFS warnings, get out, evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. So we've gone from bushfires to floods. I don't know, it's, it's, it's a good place to live. <laughs> There's always going to be something around, isn't there? There's always going to be something. Steve, it's great to talk to you. Good luck and, uh, yeah, lovely place, lovely, nice and quiet. And I don't think I could sleep here. Yeah, exactly. It's too quiet. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Thanks for coming, Mac, and we'll see you next time. It's a pleasure. Good on you. If you'd like to write to Why I Live Where I Live, it's Post Office Box 9994, Sydney 2001, or you can email us and tell us why you live where you live. Paula, is it? Paula, where are you, Paula? Good morning, Macca. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, we're, we're um, on the ferry um, coming home from Kangaroo Island, coming back to the mainland. So we've been um, at the races. They have their little racing carnival. And, um, yeah, I heard about yeah, that. The thing. How'd yeah, it go? It's the biggest thing that happens. It's the biggest thing that happens on Kangaroo Island. Right, so, yeah, and, was... and you went over for why, Paula? Yeah, I'm a horse trainer and um, I, had, I had a little team. And, um, yeah, one of my horses won yesterday, so that was really exciting. So how, you get your horses over on the ferry too, do you? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. So, yeah, we're on, we've got the horses on the back and, um, yeah, we load them on and um, we just stay down, stay down with them just to make sure that they're calm. And um, it's actually quite a nice ferry ride home this morning. Um, it's, a, it's a bit breezy, but there's no swell at all. So um, it's a very pleasant ride. And how long does that take? Yeah, about an hour, uh-huh. um, depending on the weather, sometimes about 50 minutes to an hour. Big crowd on Kangaroo Island? <clears throat> yeah, well, yesterday um, was their big day, so that was the, the Kangaroo Island Cup, and um, it was, I think there was about 3,000 people there. So, yeah, it's the biggest thing that happens on the island, and the island cap come alive yesterday. There's people everywhere, so, yeah, it's good to see. So people can fly in or, or catch the ferries? <clears throat> yep, they certainly can. Yeah, it's only 25 minute plane ride from Adelaide 
uh-huh. and um, or yeah, you drive down to to Cape Jervis and you go across. Um, takes probably about an hour and a half to get to Cape Jervis from Adelaide and catch catch the ferry across and away you go. The Kangaroo Island's a beautiful place and um, it's just recently had um, Stokes Bay was voted the best beautiful most beautiful beach in Australia for 2023. So um, yeah, Did you have, they've got a lot to offer. Yeah, I bet you're probably too busy to have a swim, but I bet the water's yeah. a bit fresh, is it? Oh, the water's not too bad, depending on sort of where you go. Some mm. parts it's quite sheltered, and we've had some hot weather, so I think it's quite warm. Yeah. And uh, we take the horses to Emu Bay, and um, we paddle them in the water there. And um, yeah, it's quite it's quite cool, but it, it's so so scenic. It's just beautiful. Tell me about the horse uh, racing business, uh, Paula. How long have you been doing that? Oh, I've been training for a little bit longer than twenty years. Mm. So I'm based in Adelaide, and only have a very small team. And um, yeah, it's all all hands on and I and I travel around to, to these sort of meetings. I've spoken to you before and um, I'll be heading off to Broken Hill in a couple of weeks and go up to there to the St Paddy's Cup up there and Oh that's right. Yeah St Paddy's <laughs> yeah. we went that year I went to there, I don't know, in the nineties I think. Um yeah that's uh, that's a great time too. That's another one of those iconic meetings that <clears throat> any any racing enthusiast uh, would like to go to. But uh, yeah, no, I go all over the place. I'm, I'm a bit like you. I'm Australia all over. I go up to Darwin and Alice Springs and yeah, race in Adelaide and all around South Australia. So well, that's a bit uh, of a that's a bit of a, a thing, isn't it? Especially taking your horses and stuff in a float, and you've got to stop the, you know, you can't, you know, the horses have got to get out and have a wander around, stretch their legs and stuff, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have our we have our stops down pat because uh, when we stop, it's like if. If you need food, go and order your food, go to the toilet while that's getting made and then, you know, I've got to fill up while we're doing that and then we're off and so the horses aren't standing in the float too long and, yeah. um, uh, you know, you can sort of, you've got to sort of keep moving. Um, and then, yeah, we have our stops around the way with some yards and give them overnight. They, they have 12 hours and that so to, to recover and they actually travel really well. Uh, do you, in, you obviously must enjoy it, Paula, but I... I guess it never stops you got to you got to keep going because that's what you do you race horses so you got to race every week or nearly every week I suppose yeah absolutely well they're not earning any money if they're in the paddock so Mm. um and my business is with with tried horses so I get um people uh, other people's horses uh older horses and um yeah we we send them around I look after them like my babies and um yeah it's it's definitely a lifestyle and I love the horses and as a young a uh, woman I used to do showing, and there's just no money in showing at all. Uh, I, I had show horses for a long time. All you do is get a ribbon, and I was like, what can I do? And then I'm like, oh, I can still play with horses, and I can go around in circles, but just a bit faster with the racehorses. There you go. Well, I'll bump into you sometime. <laughs> I was thinking of going out to some pats, but I don't know if I'll get there, but I'll, I'll no. bump into you somewhere at some race meeting somewhere, Paula. But Somewhere, um, yep. Maybe at Darwin. I'd love to go to Darwin for the Darwin. We went there once years ago. Um, I love Darwin and I love the, the races there. And it's a real uh, – do they still camp around the course and stuff like that? In the, yes. The... Yeah, there's a little caravan park on course there um, that uh, the trainers can stay and the jockeys stay there. And um, there's so many things, so many um, social things to do, especially in that last week heading up to the Darwin Cup. Um, the club does an amazing job and the, the whole town um, just comes alive and um, yeah, there's something to do all the time. You, you're a bit worn out by the end, to be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Paul. Well, great uh, great to talk to you. And it's uh, you're on the ferry now and it's a yep. 
Nice smooth ride, which is good. It's beautiful. Yep, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we've already got another about 20 minutes to go and we'll be on the mainland. Heading home. Great to talk to you, Paula. All right, Maka. See you later. See ya. Good Bye. Bye. Good morning, Maka. This is Simon of the Pink Roadhouse and the Data. How are you today? Oh, is it still pink? Is it Simon? Uh, it's getting pinker by the day, Maka. Every day the paintbrush starts and uh, and it's like the Sydney Harbour Bridge. By the time you finish, you'll start again at the other end. So what do you do? That, what are you doing there? Do you uh, you run it? Do you? No, I'm just a worker up here, Maka. Been up here for about five or six months. Moved up from Victoria, threw in the lifestyle there, and. Uh, Moved up here, and it's been one of the best things I've ever done, to be honest. Okay, there you go. I haven't been there for, look, I don't know, last time I was there must be 20 years ago at least at the... Uh, well, you'll have to come up and just check the, the shades of pink to make sure they haven't changed over 20 years. Because the rail line <laughs> used to go through it and did, you know, years ago, didn't it? Correct, yeah, the yeah. Garn Railway line yeah, yeah. certainly went through here. So Is yeah, the rail line still there or has it been pulled up? Nah, all been pulled up now. Oh. There's still some uh, water tanks and signage around through the, you know, along the length of the, the garden. But mm. uh, yeah, it's still, still, yeah, it's there as such, but it's not there. There's, there's a sidings and that sort of thing all the way through. So, all right. Yeah. Now, what's happening? Oh, just ringing up to report on a little cricket match we had here in town yesterday. It was the, uh, the townies versus stations, um, and we did that sort of for mental health awareness, etc. Um, everyone wore blue. Um, there is some reports going in about ball tampering from the stations. Oh, dear. I'm waiting for the board to get back to me on that. That's very <laughs> disappointing, isn't it? But anyway, um, <laughs> so, so. No, it, was, it was a great day. We would have had probably 120 people there from stations and, and from town. Um, and one of the good things is because they're, they're, they're sort of the, the new ringers and the old ringers are now coming back into town for, for the season. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, because there are a lot of young new kids that come in, a lot of, a lot of internationals as well. Um, and that sort of mental health awareness is, is good because they can all get together here at the Roadhouse after the match and socialise and, and meet each other. And it was, yeah, just a fantastic uh, event yesterday, 42 degrees out on the field. I was going to ask you that. It would have been lovely. fairly fairly willing out there. Lots of lots of the Greg Chapel hats and lots of zinc cream, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, not so much the Greg Chapel hats, more of the Akubras and, uh, you know, a bit of long sleeve shirts, et cetera. But uh, exactly. it was, yeah, we, we're, we're getting a 42 every day and, and a bit of a breeze yesterday kept the flies away. It was fantastic day. It was really, really good. Simon, great to mm. talk to you, mate. I'll have to get out to the uh, the Jolly Pink Roadhouse at Udnadatta again sometime. But um, nice to hear from We'd you, Simon. We'd love to have you out here, Macca. Yeah. I'll, good I'll, on you, Macca. Thank you. See you, mate. Bye. Hi, Marco. This is Andrew from Living Legends beside Melbourne Airport. Oh, where, where the uh, racehorses, uh, the old retired racehorses are. Yeah, that's it, Marco. I'm a worn-out old vet, they say, with some worn-out old horses. But no, we've got some uh, great fun here today. We've got the winners of eight Melbourne Cups on the property at the moment, which mm. and we've got a big open day today. Um, I guess I say we've got the winners of eight Melbourne Cups, but we're cheating a little bit because... We've got Maccabi Diva here, so she oh, won three. Wow. So pretty special to have her here for people to be able to come up and meet and mingle with. Oh, wouldn't that be fantastic? What a, what a great horse Maccabi was. What a great horse, uh, along with Winks and, and Black Caviar. Oh, wonderful horses. So, um, And she's, she lives there, does she, uh, Maccabi? No, no, Macca. She's here for five days. Tony Santic, bless him, is... Um, Maccabi, uh, she's finished having babies, um, mm. and we there's a big 
festival of racing in Melbourne at the moment, and there was a big international, couple of international conferences on racing through the week. So we just teed up, and um, she's been here for a day before. Um, but with this thing on, uh, Tony said, no, she can come up for five days for the opportunity for people to get up close and patter, you know, and she's just got the most amazing personality. There's a inner self-belief in her, you know. I think when she walked into the ring, when she just as she walked in for a third Melbourne Cup, she stood there and held her head up high and there's, you know, tens of thousands of people there. She got off the truck here the other day, Macca, she she lifted her head up and she looked around. It was the same look, you know. There's that just inner self-confidence. It's just amazing on these type horses. Yes, a a truly amazing horse. I always... uh, it's no regret, but I just always wonder how Winks would have gone if she'd have been trained for the Melbourne Cup. I think she would have won some Melbourne Cups, so th- but they probably wanted to do it a different way. But Winks seemed to be the sort of horse who could run a distance and could sprint like hell. And uh, I reckon you know, if Winks had been trained for Melbourne Cups, say like Maccabi was, um, yep. she, she'd have done the same thing. She was a great horse too, but Maccabi... And, and Black Caviar wasn't a distance horse, but... What a wonderful horse. They're lovely horses. And all the girls, you know, all the girls. Yeah. Give me a break. Well, that's the thing. And we're, we're lucky to have her because uh, Maccabi's finished having babies. Like the rest of our horses are all geldings here. Mm-hmm. Um, but great to be able to have uh, the wonderful mare Maccabi here. So people can go there today at Living Legends uh, just opposite Melbourne Airport. That's it. We're going to do a parade at uh, 12.30 of our cup winners. Oh, um, wow. We've got kids activities we've got some mini legends we've got some they were champion little show horses and we've 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 got them here as well there's five of them so what, they're here for the kids to enjoy as well what other cup winners have you got there besides uh, maccabi uh we've got brew 2000 uh-huh. um we've got efficient we've got um al mandan we've got um yeah that that, that's the sort of the the group that we've got. We've got Twilight Payments, the other one, the horse we call Twiggy. <laughs> All right, good on you, Andrew. Good luck. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Marker, and we'll have to get you here over the spring carnival next year. All right, mate. or later this year. Good on you. Bye. Cheers. Damien's in Yalgoo. Morning, Damien. Morning, Macca. How are you today, mate? Good, mate. Tell yes, me. Yes, I'm out of. Out at Yolgoo, we're um, water exploration drillers, so we're hunting for a bit of water out here. So today, um, at the moment, it's quite a nice day. I reckon she'll get to about 44 today, so standing at the rig, she'll probably be about 55. Wow. And how long have you been doing this work, sort of work, Damien? Uh, this is my 32nd year this, this year, Macca. Hmm. I've actually got a bit of a funny story about that, so when I employ senior exploration drillers these days i say to them one of the first questions is is uh who plays on an ab on the abc on a sunday morning and if they don't give me the correct answer they don't get the job they haven't been doing it long enough ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, damien yeah send us a photo mate send us a photo but uh, so you you work all over the place i suppose do you yeah mate all over the state we've been up at um out of telfa and now we're down here at Yelgoo for a few weeks, then we'll push back towards the Telfer Way. You keep in touch with us, Damien, if you would. No problem at all, Macca. You have a great day. Good on you, mate. Bye. See you, buddy.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.